0: Section 5 The Three Trainings Revisited The Three Trainings provide a great framework for thinking about spiritual work, a framework that can help us maintain a clear and empowering way of thinking about what we are doing. In this chapter, I will discuss many important aspects of the spiritual path and use the Three Trainings, actually the scope of each of the Three Trainings, to provide an easy and powerful way of dealing with these complex topics. Just to review... The scope of the first training, which I call morality, is the ordinary world, the conventional world, the world that we are all familiar with before we even consider more specialized topics such as meditation. The goal is to act, speak, and think in ways that are conducive to the welfare of yourself and others. The scope of the second training, concentration or depths of meditation, is to focus on very specific and limited objects of meditation and thus attain to specific altered states of consciousness. The scope of the third training is that of insight or wisdom, is to shift to perceiving reality at the level of individual sensations, perceive the three characteristics of them, and thus attain to profound insights into the nature of reality, and thus realize stages of enlightenment. First, I will consider happiness in the context of scopes of the three trainings. As training in morality is such a vast subject, the ways we can find happiness is also a vast subject and becomes interesting primarily in comparison with the scope of the other two trainings, those of concentration and wisdom. The common denominator of the concentration attainments is that we learn to get ourselves into states of consciousness that are some mixture of blissful and peaceful, as well as increasingly spacious and removed from our ordinary experience. These can be a source of happiness that is far more intense and reliable than the happiness found in the ordinary world. Being able to access as much happiness and peace as we wish, when we wish, reduces our anger at the world for not providing us with these, making us less needy and greedy. There is also the happiness that comes from seeing the true nature of the sensations that make up our world, and thus attaining to stages of realization or enlightenment. There are three areas of renunciation that correspond to the scopes of the three trainings. We can renounce aspects of the ordinary world by simply abandoning these things. We can quit our job, leave our relationship, stop smoking crack, and shave our heads. We can try to be less angry or fearful. We can work on our communication skills, trying to avoid lying and slander. Some of these may be easier than others, and some of these may be helpful and some not. But the important point here is that these sorts of forms of renunciation are, for better or for worse, renunciation of aspects of the ordinary world within the context of the first training's scope. Or, we can renounce renouncing these things and do them. Renunciation is a very arbitrary concept when applied to the first training. There is also the renunciation that comes from being willing and able to attain the temporary concentration attainments. We are willing to spend some time removed from the ordinary experience of the world and enter into states where the ordinary world becomes more and more removed from us. It is not usually that hard to convince people that there may be occasions when having the ability to renounce the ordinary world in this way for some period of time could be advantageous. We can all imagine taking a little bliss break and finding it helpful in some appropriate context there is also the type of renunciation associated with insight practices in which one is willing to break from the gross conceptual way of working that is helpful for the scope of the ordinary world break from the more restricted and refined conceptual way of working that is necessary to attain stable altered states of consciousness and move to perceiving sensations individually and directly seeing the true nature of them this is a much more subtle and sophisticated form of renunciation than the other two and it is not always easy to convince people that having this option open to them is a good idea. While enlightenment generally sounds very appealing, it suddenly sounds strange in the context of seeing all sensations as being utterly transient, a source of pain, if we make artificial dualities out of them, and not self. People often mix up the three kinds of renunciation, the most common error being that they imagine that they must give up aspects of the first two trainings, a happy life and fun concentration states in order to renounce them in the insight way in which they see the true nature of the sensations that make up these things. They imagine that they must give up their job or relationship in order to see its true nature or imagine that they must not enter into high states to see their true nature. This basic conceptual error causes many of the problems that people find on the spiritual path. That brings me to the three forms of suffering. First, There is the form of suffering that Buddha is most famous for talking about. Ordinary suffering. The standard list including these things as birth, sickness, old age, death, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. These are ordinary forms of suffering that we can try to mitigate as best we can by ordinary methods. For example, by working within the scope of the first training, such as the conventional world, I am a big fan of trying to find worldly happiness so long as we do not neglect the importance of the other two trainings. There is also the form of suffering relating to the scope of the second training that comes from being limited to our ordinary state of consciousness. With our only way out coming from sleep or the use of chemical substances, we yearn for bliss that is not so bound up in things like whether or not we get a good job, for experiences like those found in the concentration states. Our minds have this potential, and the failure to be able to access these states at times when doing so would be helpful and healthy is a source of bondage. I am a big fan of being able to attain these wonderful states so long as we do not neglect the other two trainings. There is also the kind of suffering that comes from making artificial dualities out of non dual sensations, and all of the unnecessary reactivity, misperceptions, distortions of perspective and proportion and basic blindness that accompanies that process. This kind of suffering, relating to the scope of training in wisdom, is not touched by the first two trainings, and thus forms a background level of suffering in our life, and also increases the potential for further suffering in the other two scopes. This form of suffering is gradually relieved by the stages of enlightenment, as fewer and fewer aspects of reality have the capacity to trick the mind in this way. I am a big fan of awakening and thus eliminating this pervasive form of suffering, just as long as we do not also neglect the other two trainings. The suffering of the ordinary world can be extremely unpredictable, and working to relieve it is a very complex business, the work of a lifetime, and perhaps an eternity. The suffering related to being unable to access refined altered states of consciousness is mitigated by simply taking the time to learn the skills necessary and then refining them until they are accessible to us when we wish. There are limits to these states, and so the basic states attainable by training in concentration can be very thoroughly mastered within a lifetime and even within a few years or perhaps months for those with talent and diligence. The stages of enlightenment are permanent, and once they are attained, That aspect of our suffering is forever eliminated and never arises again. This can be accomplished by those who take the time to learn the skills necessary, to see individual sensations clearly, and are willing to work on that level. These basic facts can be used to help us plan our quest for happiness and the elimination of the various forms of suffering in our life. We can direct our studies, our training and work on specific skills that lead to specific effects and abilities, in the order we choose, within the limits of our life circumstances and the resources available to us. For instance, it might make sense to learn concentration skills early in our life, as they cultivate so many of the skills necessary for the other two trainings, and can provide increased sense of ease and well-being. For example, rather than popping a cold beer at the end of a hard day, We could bathe our body and mind in as much bliss and peace as we can stand, for as long as we wish. If we master concentration practices, we have the option to make such choices. It might also make sense to work on insight practices early rather than later, so as to reduce the amount of time during our life that we spend with the fundamental suffering caused by the illusion of duality. There is only so much we can do to prevent ordinary suffering for ourselves and others though it is always good to do what we can. Thus it is also good to realize that we can also reduce and eliminate the other forms of suffering through learning the two basic styles of meditation more easily than we can eliminate much of our conventional suffering. There are three ways in which words such as enlightenment are used, and these may also relate to the scopes of the three trainings. However, I feel that this is a dangerous habit and I strongly advocate using enlightenment and similar words to refer only to ultimate insights, meaning the stages of awakening in the high and traditional sense. While we may hear people speak of committing enlightened actions or of thinking in enlightened ways, I have come to the conclusion that for spiritual training we either need to be very careful to explain that these are very conventional and relative definitions of enlightenment or not use such language at all, Some traditions give some of the very high concentration states an ultimate status. I also advocate strongly against this, as did the Buddha. These states are so compelling and seductive for some people that they imagine they are enlightened in the non-dual sense when they are merely having temporary, unitive or unknowing experiences. That is, experiences where reality did something that was sufficiently lacking in specific qualities or intensity to be clearly known. Thus, I strongly suggest that such attainments never be associated with the language of enlightenment in any way. Thus, I define enlightenment as permanently eliminating the basic perceptions that either duality or unity is the answer, and thus attaining to permanent, non-dual realizations that are unshakable. It has nothing whatsoever to do with how things manifest, and everything to do with some basic understanding of those things. I devote an entire chapter to explaining this more fully, but it is important for the discussion in between here and there to have been introduced to the strict and formal definition of enlightenment that I will be using. These frameworks can also be useful for looking at other common issues, such as thoughts of past and future, that people run into when they get into meditation. Confusion arises when these pieces of advice are applied outside of the scope for which they were meant when working on our ordinary lives. For example, within the scope of the first training, the content of our thoughts on past and future is very helpful, in fact, absolutely necessary. With experience, we generate a body of memory of what leads to what in this world. And with our predictive ability, we can use this to try to craft a well-lived life, however we define that. However, when working on training in concentration, such thoughts are generally ignored or suppressed by deep concentration on another object when doing insight practices it doesn't matter so much if thoughts of the past or future arise so long as we ignore their content notice that they occur now and notice the true nature of the individual sensations that make up those thoughts it is common to hear of people trying to apply one piece of advice to a scope for which it was never intended like trying to stop thinking when trying to deal with their daily life. This sort of practice would simply promote stupidity, and there is already more than enough of that. In short, when evaluating or applying a piece of spiritual advice, make sure you understand the specific context for which it was designed. I thought it would be fun to envision the three trainings as characters and have them critique each other and then talk with each other about ways that they could reinforce each other. I will do this in the form of a short play in one act. While I will exaggerate and dichotomize their issues with each other for comic effect, I do think that each of the points made has some validity. Hopefully, you will see through the humor to the important points being illustrated. The curtain opens. Morality, concentration, and insight are sitting in a bar having a discussion. A large stack of empty shot glasses sits in front of each character. Morality. You navel-gazing, self-absorbed, good-for-nothing freaks. I go out and work all day long to make this world fit to live in, while you two sit on those sweat-covered cushions and cultivate butt rot. I go out and make good money, keep food in our mouths, a roof over our head, deal with our stuff, and you go out and spend our money up at that freak house you call a meditation center when there's important work to be done. I want to work on my tan. Insight. Who are you calling self-absorbed? "'I can't be self-absorbed by definition. "'If it wasn't for me, you would be so stuck into dualistic illusion "'that you wouldn't know your ass from your elbow. "'You conceptually fixated, emotionally mired, "'bound-up manifestation-looking twelfth-sandwich-eating. "'Concentration. "'Yeah, and by the way, Mr. Oh-So-worldly, "'you should lighten up sometimes. "'Work your fingers to the bone, what do you get? "'Bony fingers, that's what. "'And that goes for you too, Mr. Enlightenment.' "'If you didn't have my skills, you'd be shit out of luck, unable to focus, and dead boring to boot. "'Who brings up the deep joy and wondrous minds around here? I do, that's who. "'So you two should just shut up.' Inside. "'Oh, yeah? Well, Mr. La La Land, if it weren't for me, we'd be so caught up in your transit highs that we might just get arrested. "'Somebody call the law.' You two are so easily sucked into blowing things out of proportion that without me, you two would have all the perspective as of a dung heap. Morality. Dung heap? You'd be lucky to have a dung heap if it wasn't for me, you emptiness-fixated, oh-I'm-so-conceptual vibration junkie. What good is having perceptive if you just don't go out and use it? Concentration. Yeah, and speaking of perspective, I give you guys more perspective than you have any idea of. Not only do I provide a bridge between a resident save-the-world poster child and the void-fixated Flicker Boy, I help you two get your twitchy little minds right. I help the Boy Scout here gain more and more deeper insights into his screwed-up emotional world and stuff than he ever could have on his own. And if it wasn't for me, Mr. Altman would just be spinning his wheels in the parking lot. And furthermore, I am fun, fun, fun! Insight. Yeah, well, maybe... you don't know when to stop you other worldly space case if relative man and i hadn't pulled you out of the clouds you'd still be lost in some formless thinking that you had half a clue i'm the one with the clue there ain't nothing in the world like what i know and without it you two's whole pathetic little sense of identity would be bound up in a world beyond your control i am your salvation and you know it morality Beyond my control, my ass. I make things happen in this world. Great things. I am the one that really gets us somewhere. I make a difference. Who cares if there's no self when people are starving in Africa? Insight. Who cares is exactly my point. There is no separate, permanent self that cares. Morality. I know you are, but what am I? Exactly. Jerk. Concentration. See? See? You guys got to chill out, get some balance and peace in your life. Take a few moments and just breathe. Leave your worries and cares behind and fly the friendly skies. It's free, legal, and oh, so recommended. You can quit whenever you like. All your friends are doing it. Come on, just relax. Morality. All right, fly guy, when are we going to deal with our emotional issues, huh? When are we going to save the world? We can't just go on vacation forever. Insight. Your problem is that you can't see the sensations that make up these issues as they really are. So you make such a big frickin' deal out of them. I mean, I see your point, but you are so reactive and blind that you are hardly the one for the job. Solidify these things into huge monsters. Forget you have done this, and then freak out when they come running after you. You need a clue, you confused little shrew. Morality. Oh, Yeah. Don't think that just because you can see the true nature of the issues that make up your reality that you won't still have some stuff to deal with. Now that's delusion. Insight. It's even more deluded to think that you can really have a completely healthy perspective on anything without me, you monster maker. Concentration. Dude, do you see those angels floating through the wall? Morality. Where in the hell did I find you, freaks? Insight. Short memory, eh? You found us when you realized you couldn't do it on your own. You needed us to really be able to do the job you wanted to do, to really make a difference and be as happy and effective as you could be. Morality. Yeah. And when can I get rid of you? Concentration. When you have mastered us completely. Jinx. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Bartender. The end. If you find that you've gotten to the point when you cannot laugh at your own path, stop immediately and figure out why. I hope you've found this little irreverent dialogue entertaining. While obviously a bit ridiculous, these sorts of tensions can arise until we really have a solid grasp of each training. When we have this, they will work together as they were meant to. The Four Noble Truths The Four Noble Truths, suffering, its cause, its end, and the path that leads to its end, are fundamental to the teachings of the Buddha. He was fond of summarizing his whole teaching in terms of them. Actually, when asked to be really concise, he would just say the first and third, suffering and the end of suffering. This was what he taught. Like the other little lists here, they have great profundity on many levels and are worth exploring in depth. Truth number one, suffering. The first truth is of suffering. Hey, didn't we just see that in the three characteristics? Yes, isn't that great? We also just saw it in the three trainings revisited. There must be something important about it. Why do we practice? Suffering, that's why. It is just that simple. Why do we do anything? Suffering! Plenty of people balk at this and say that they do lots of things because of reasons other than suffering. I suppose that to be really correct, I should add in ignorance and habit, but these are intimately connected to suffering. This is worth investigating in depth. Perhaps there is something more to this first truth that may have been missed on first inspection, as it is a deep and subtle teaching. Actually, to understand this first truth is to understand the whole of the spiritual path, so take time to investigate it. The basic gist of the truth from a relative point of view is that we want things to be other than they are, and this causes pain. We want things that are nice to be permanent. We want to get what we want and avoid what we don't want. We wish bad things would go faster than they do, and these are all contrary to reality. We all die, get sick, have conflicts, and constantly seem to be running around, either trying to get something, greed, or get away from something, hatred, or tune out from reality altogether, delusion. We are never perfectly happy with things just as they are. These are the traditional, relative ways in which suffering is explained, but these definitions can only take us so far. At the most fundamental level, the level that is the most helpful for doing insight practices, we wish desperately that there was some separate, permanent self and we spend huge amounts of time doing our best to prop up this illusion. In order to do this, we habitually ignore lots of useful information about our reality and give our mental impressions and simplifications of reality much more importance than they are necessarily due. It is this illusion that adds a problematic element to the normal and understandable ways in which we go about trying to be happy. We constantly struggle with reality because we misunderstand it i.e. because reality misunderstands itself so what's new one might say good point it isn't new is it this has been the whole of our life the big question is is there some understanding which makes a difference yes or we wouldn't be bothering with all of this spirituality stuff somewhere down deep in our being there is a little voice that cries there is another way we can find this other way Connecting with the truth of suffering can actually be very motivating for spiritual practice. Most traditional talks on the Buddha's teaching begin with this. More than simply motivation for spiritual practice, tuning into suffering is spiritual practice. Many people start meditating and then they get frustrated with how much suffering and pain they experience, never knowing that they are actually starting to understand something. They cling to the ideal that insight practices will produce peace and bliss, and yet much of what they find is suffering. They don't realize that things on the cushion tend to get worse before they get better. Thus, they reject the very truths they must deeply understand to obtain the peace they were looking for, and thus get nowhere. They reject their own valid insights that they have obtained through valid practice, I suspect that this is one of the greatest and most common stumbling blocks on the spiritual path. There is a flip side to suffering which can help, and that is compassion, the wish for there not to be suffering. Wherever there is suffering, there is compassion, though most of the time somewhat twisted by the confused logic of the process of ego. More on this in a bit, but it leads directly to the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. Truth number two, DESIRE. The second noble truth is that the cause of suffering is desire, also rendered as craving or attachment. We want things to be other than they are because we perceive the world through the odd logic of the process of ego, through the illusion of the split of the perceiver and the perceived. We might say, of course we want all things to be great and not unpleasant. What do you expect? The problem isn't actually quite in the desire for things to be good and not to be bad in the way that we might think. It is, in fact, just a bit subtler than that. This is a really slippery business, and many people can get all into craving for non-craving and desiring for non-attachment. This can be useful if it is done wisely, and it is actually all we have to work with. If common sense is ignored, however... Desiring non-attachment may produce neurotic, self-righteous, repressed aesthetics instead of balanced, kind meditators. A tour of any monastery or spiritual community will likely expose you to clear examples of both sides of this delicate balance, so don't make too much of a problem out of the fact that it seems that one must desire something in order to seek it. This paradox will resolve itself if we are able to experience reality in this moment clearly craving attachment and desire are some of the most dangerous words that can be used to describe something that is actually much more fundamental than these seem to indicate the buddha did talk about these conventional forms of suffering but he also talked about the fundamental suffering that comes from deep longing for a refuge that involves a separate or permanent self we imagine that such a self will be a refuge and so we desire such a self We try to make certain sensations into such a self. We cling to the fundamental notion that such a self can exist as a stable entity and that this will somehow help. The side effects of this manifest in all sorts of addictions to mind states and emotions that are not helpful. But these are side effects and not the root cause of suffering that the Buddha was pointing to. As stated earlier, a helpful concept here is compassion, a heart aspect of the practice and reality related to kindness. You see, wherever there is a desire, there is suffering, and wherever there is suffering, there is compassion, the desire for the end of suffering. You can actually experience this. So obviously, there is some really close relationship between suffering, desire, and compassion. This is heavy but good stuff and worth investigating. We might conceive of this as compassion having gotten caught in a loop, the loop of the illusion of duality. This is sort of like a dog's tail chasing itself. Pain and pleasure, suffering and satisfaction always seem to be over there. Thus, when pleasant sensations arise, there is a constant, compassionate, deluded attempt to get over there to the other side of the imagined split. This is fundamental attraction. You would think that we would just stop imagining there is a split, but somehow that is not what happens. We keep perpetuating the sense of a split, even as we try to bridge it, and so we suffer. When unpleasant sensations arise, there is an attempt to get away from over there, to widen the imagined split. This will never work, because it doesn't actually exist. But the way we hold our minds as we try to get away from that side is painful. When boring or unpleasant sensations arise, there is an attempt to tune out altogether and forget the whole thing to try to pretend that the sensations on the other side of the split are not there. This is fundamental ignorance and it perpetuates the process, as it is by ignoring aspects of our sensate reality that the illusion of a split is created in the first place. These strict definitions of fundamental attraction, aversion and ignorance are very important, particularly for when I discuss the various models of the stages of enlightenment. Given the illusion, it seems that somehow these mental reactions will help in a way that will be permanent. Remember that the only thing that will fundamentally help is to understand the three characteristics to the degree that makes the difference, and the three characteristics are manifesting right here. Remember how it was stated above that suffering motivates everything we do? We could also say that everything we do is motivated by compassion, which is a part of the fundamentally empty nature of reality. That doesn't mean that everything we do is skillful. That is a whole different issue. Compassion is a very good thing, especially when it involves oneself and all beings. This is sort of the flip side of the second noble truth. The whole problem is that misdirected compassion, compassion that is filtered through the process of ego and its related habits, can produce enormous suffering and often does. It is easy to think of many examples of people searching for happiness in the strangest of places, and by doing the strangest of things. Just pick up any newspaper. The take-home message is to search for happiness where you are actually likely to find it. We might say that compassion is the ultimate aspect of desire, or think of compassion and desire on a continuum. The more wisdom or understanding of interconnectedness there is behind our intentions and actions, the more they reflect compassion, and the more the results will turn out well. The more greed, hatred, and illusion, or lack of understanding of interconnectedness there is behind our intentions and actions, the more they reflect desire, and the more suffering there will likely be. This is sometimes referred to as the law of karma, where karma is a word that has to do with our intentions and actions. Some people can get all caught up in specifics of this that cannot possibly be known, Like speculating that if we kill a bug, we will come back as a bug and be squished. Don't. Cause and effect, also called interdependence, is just too imponderably complex. Just use this general concept to look honestly at what you want, why, and precisely how you know this. Examine what the consequences of what you do and think might be for yourself and everyone, and then take responsibility for those consequences. It's a tall order and an important practice to engage in, but don't get too obsessive about it. Remember the simplicity of the first training, training in kindness, generosity, honesty and clarity, and gain balance and wisdom from the other two trainings as you go. Sometimes looking into suffering and desire can be overwhelming. Life can sometimes be extremely hard. In these moments, try looking into the heart side of the equation, compassion and kindness. Connect with the part of your heart that just wishes the suffering would end and feel that deeply, especially as it manifests in the body. Just this can be profound practice. There are also lots of other good techniques for cultivating a spaciousness of heart that can bear anything, such as formal loving-kindness practices. See Sharon Salzberg's Excellent Loving-Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. Finding them and practicing them can make the spiritual path much more bearable and pleasant. And this can make it much more likely that we will be able to persevere, gain deep insights, be able to integrate them into our lives, and use them to benefit others. The take-home message is to take the desire to be happy and free of suffering and use its energy to do skillful things that can actually make this happen— rather than getting caught in the old unexamined patterns of searching for happiness where you know you will not find it. The three trainings are skillful and can inform the whole of our life. By following them, we may come to the end of many forms of suffering and be in a better position to help others do the same. Truth number three, the end of suffering. This brings us nicely to the third noble truth, the end of suffering. Now, as noted before... There are three types of suffering pertaining to the scope of each of the three trainings. Traditionally, the Buddha talked about the end of suffering as relating to mastering the third training, and thus becoming highly enlightened. The first point is that it can be done, and is done today by meditators like you, from many spiritual traditions. Yes, there are enlightened people walking around, and just not a rare few that have spent 20 years in a cave in Tibet. This is really important to understand and have faith in. The other point is that, with the end of fundamental desire, which we will render here as the end of compassion and reality being filtered through the odd logic of the process of ego, there is the end of fundamental suffering. That's it. Done is what has to be done. Gone, gone, gone beyond, and all that. All beings can do it, and there is, to make a bit of a mystical joke, no time like the present. Now, it must be said that the Buddha also praised those who had mastered the two trainings and thus eliminated what suffering could be eliminated by those methods. Even very enlightened beings can benefit from mastering the concentration states. However, there are some complex and difficult issues related to eliminating all of the ordinary suffering in the world and thus related to mastering the first training, which is an endless undertaking. It is because of this particular issue that such teachings as the Bodhisattva vow arose, and I will deal with these complexities toward the end of this book. Truth number 4. The Path The fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path that leads to suffering's final end. Another list! Hopefully you have come to like these little lists by now, and so one more will hopefully be seen as another manageable little guide on how to find the end of suffering. Luckily, we have already seen the whole of the Noble Eightfold Path in other parts of some of the other lists, and it is summarized in the three trainings of morality, concentration, and wisdom. The morality section is just broken down into three specifics, skillful action, skillful speech, and skillful livelihood. Skillful means conducive to the end of suffering for us and for all other living beings. Be kind, honest, clear, and compassionate in your whole life, in your actions, speech, and work. Notice that nothing is excluded here. The more of our lives we integrate with the spiritual path, the better. Simple to remember and also a powerful guide. The Concentration section contains three things we saw in the five spiritual faculties and the seven factors of enlightenment. Skillful energy, skillful concentration, and skillful mindfulness. The Wisdom section has the last two parts of the path, Skillful thought or intention, and skillful understanding or wisdom. These two are often rendered in different ways, but the meaning is the same. Understand the truth of your experience and aspire to kindness and wisdom in your thoughts and deeds. Again, simple but powerful.